Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, ecological and political crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Mike Joy, who is a freshwater ecologist. And we had a wonderful, far-reaching conversation that ranged from how the dairy industry in New Zealand is impacting the rates of colon cancer in the country, to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, to energy consumption, to political power structures. Just one of these types of conversations that frequently crop up on the podcast. What I particularly enjoyed in this conversation is that, certainly in the first half, Mike lays out this systemic links between how industries are impacting human health. He also touches on the fact that human health and planetary health are inherently linked, i.e. that which is good for the natural world is also good for us. And then we sort of get into talking about, well, what does a good life look for human beings? How do we galvanize movements around that? How do we communicate it? And how can we very specifically target the industries and the people that are causing much of the crises around the world, rather than arbitrarily and sometimes abstractly blaming concepts for the situation that we find ourselves in today. There's so many nuggets of gold in this episode. I really hope you all enjoy it. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love the episode, support the podcast at planetcritical.com. Becoming a paid subscriber also supports my independent investigations into climate corruption around the world. I expose dangerous industry greenwashing and the world's worst climate fraudsters. If that's important to you, join the Planet Critical community who help make that happen. And to those of you who are already supporting this podcast and my work, thank you so much. I think first things first, mm -hmm. congratulations uh, to your neighbours on a leftist mm. win in the Australian election. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of, um, a bit, I'm a bit kind of, worn out with this whole um, political system because we ended up with a Labour government and a Labour Green coalition and then a Labour government with a, a woman, woman Prime Minister and everybody thought it was going to be fantastic, but but they just seemed to sell out, you know, it's a, it's a guaranteed heartbreak to support or to follow a um, politician I've found, you know, I've just... I've been burnt so many times and they just seem to compromise. <laughs> you know, they've, they've asked me to... The Green Party asked me to to become to stand for Parliament, you know, and I just there's no way I I couldn't do the compromise that they have to do, you know. So um and yeah. so that's yeah we it probably looks great from over there, um but it's not so good when you hear and you see what going on, what's going on, you know. Sure, but I'm starting to think more and more in terms of um steps and processes. So yeah. I think it yeah. st is still important that we like guard mm. faith in what politics could be and support those yeah, that yeah. yeah are making compromises but they're making the kind of compromises mm. that hopefully won't have to be made in 10 years if we keep pushing that kind of mm. progressive agenda mm, mm. you might think that's yeah naive. yeah it could always be could be a lot worse <laughs> like that's the yeah that's the thing i guess they'll never they'll never be fast enough for me so um yeah mm. yeah yeah, that I can understand. So, Mike, give us some mm. background about your your work and then hopefully a little bit more about your relationship with the New Zealand government. <laughs> and we'll launch <laughs> off and see where we go. 
Okay, well, yeah, <clears throat> I'm a freshwater ecologist, but I, I didn't, okay, I go back a bit further. I didn't start at university. I, I, I didn't even go walk through the door of a university until I was um, 33, 34 years old. So I had a whole life okay. driving trucks and taxis and sailing around the Pacific and, and doing building work and, you know, very practical kind of jobs. And then, um, started at university late in life and then just loved every second of it and did a undergrad degree and then a master's and then a PhD. And then before I even finished my PhD, I started teaching and, um, it was just a slow kind of, uh, radicalization that happened over that time, I think is kind of, well, we convinced ourselves and the rest of the world that we are clean and green here in New Zealand. And I kind of, so I grew up with this belief that we were that I was so fortunate to be to be born in this country where you know we're we're world leaders and and um and sustainability then I need to find out that we're actually the opposite we're really really bad and um especially the last three decades we've just gone uh, really really backwards and so much harm being done to fresh water you know our per, just like most wealthy countries I guess our per capita emissions are amongst the highest in the world and our, our per capita use mm. of uh, fertilizer and uh, marine captures and you name it, exploiting the environment, we've, we're we're just so high up and we're so low in the rankings um, globally. So it was such mm. a shock, and and I guess that's what that made me angry because I had this expectation that was that was shattered, and so I became more and more uh, outspoken about it. I guess, unlike most of my colleagues, I started writing op-eds and newspapers and things, and mm. and that that led to um, me running um, up uh, into trouble with the prime minister. And and so, did you want to hear the story? It was yeah, this... yeah, we want to hear that story. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> um, I I wrote this. Um, an op-ed for one of our uh, for our biggest the new um, the New Zealand Herald and about our how we kid ourselves about how well we are doing environmentally and it got picked up by um by Hard Talk BBC Hard Talk Stephen Sacker um, mm-hmm. was was decided to to use that information and our Prime Minister uh, John Key this was quite a few years ago. He was just, he'd only been in the job a year, a real sort of right-wing businessman, leader of the National Party, was it was in the UK and um, agreed to do an interview with, with Saka. And he, Saka tore shreds off him, but especially about this environmental stuff. And he famously, John Key, our prime minister, you know, he was getting all this stuff quoted at him. And But your leading environmental scientist, Mike Joy, says, blah, blah, blah. And John Key says, well, you know, it's just he's this one scientist's opinion. You know, they're just like lawyers. You can always go get another opinion. And <laughs> the, 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 the other opinion has never come. And um, hilariously, even the lawyers were kind of upset about that. They didn't think that was right either. And so it, it kind of made me, I guess, famous or infamous overnight in New Zealand, having that played over and over again. And then I had this interesting situation where for, it felt like for weeks and weeks and weeks when I was just getting talked about, nobody was actually talking to me. It was just mm. one of these things about, he said this and he thinks this and, you know, so it was kind of a weird time. But I mean, it, it did raise my profile a bit and gave me the opportunity, I guess, to speak out even more about those issues. But um, 
it was it was really fresh water that that started me along this path and then not being able to just narrow down like lots of my colleagues can into just you know studying intensely you know some reductionist kind of uh i, I started working on native native fish actually but um you know that kind of narrowing down wasn't for me i had to look at the causes of what was happening and, it, and inevitably it becomes political because they tend to be political decisions that allow these these things to happen the so frustration so, with the failure to look after our environment so tell us what's going on then uh what's happening to new zealand's fresh waters oh well so what happened is um oh, it's kind of a long story but we ended up industrializing farming here in a big way so we kind of promote mm -hmm. ourselves as really big in this um uh, grass-fed dairy we actually are the biggest exporter of dairy in the world new zealand is what but, yeah we're the biggest exporter but because most countries produce their own you know their their own consumption milk is uh -huh. is produced locally but we're the biggest exporter because very little of what we produce is maybe a few percent not even two percent of it is drunk actually as milk the rest of it, a, a chunk goes into, you know, cheese and butter and that kind of thing. Mm. But the vast majority of it goes is dried and and turned into milk powder, where it becomes a, a you know, exported and becomes a commodity. Most of it, it's very hard to trace, but most of it ends up in this classification of confectionery, which means it's it's a junk food filler. It's a cheap protein on a global market, a global commodity. It ends up as coating on, you know, all sorts of, of junk food and junk food mm. bars and all that kind of thing. And a big, the other big use for it is, um, as breast milk replacement, you know, infant formula, it goes yeah. into that all over the world through, a, through some yeah. really big companies. So we produce a huge amount of milk from a little country, but most of it is dried and mostly using coal, um, into oh, a powder so that it can be exported because then you have the shelf life and you know i mean you're at the bottom of the world it's you, you, very hard to to trade in fresh you know dairy products when you live there and so mm -hmm. and and so you've had this um there's a there was a you know the government sort of took over and we had one big dairy company then a, and a dairy uh legislation which meant that this one dairy company had to take the deal was that if anyone started a dairy farm in New Zealand, they this this company had to take their milk. They were required to under law, and so to hedge that um, the threat of not being able to process that milk, every new shareholder the shares went into buying drying uh, infrastructure, and so now there's this huge amount of stainless steel um, drying capacity. As I said, mostly um, dried using coal. Um, and we even import coal to do that. Um, that means that we're kind of locked into this high production model. And mm. so we put huge amounts of fertilizer on. We're also the biggest importer of palm kernel globally. You know, the, no other country. What does that do? Uh, import. So, you know, the palm, you would have heard, of, you, I actually, I think you do some work around um, Malaysia and Indonesia where palm, oil, the, like, yeah. palm plantations are. And so after they do the processing to get the palm oil is this kernel, uh, they call it palm kernel expeller. It's the kind of the kernel of the, whatever it is, they squeeze the oil out of and, mm -hmm. and we import it as stock food. 
So we feed it directly to cows. It's a very cheap food. And it's kind of also related to this other dumb thing we do, which is we, we grow Pinus radiata, um, northern hemisphere pine, in plantations here, and we export whole logs. And so these ships take, you know, we, or every port in the country has just got this massive area that's just logs as far as the eye can see, and we load them onto yeah. these ships to be processed offshore. But the backload for those ships is ideal to fill them up with palm kernel to bring it back again. So you get kind of, um, you know, a sub cross subsidy between logs out and yeah. palm kernel in. And so that the sort of artificially high intensity of of cows, because nitrate fertilizer, a, a quarter of it coming from gas, local gas that's turned into urea ammonia fertilizer, and three quarters of it is imported from the Middle East. And so that that cranks up the intensity of, of dairy farming and it's kind of counterintuitive, but the biggest problem is actually the cow's urine. So mm -hmm. the, the nitrate goes onto the grass and grows the grass. Um, the cows eat the grass, but it, they, very little of that nitrate of that nitrogen goes out in the milk. So the rest of it's excreted through urine. And if you or any of the listeners have, have seen a cow urinate, you know that it's kind of just this, this big dump of, um, you know, high volume over a very small area. And it's just almost pure nitrogen. And mm -hmm. because it's not spread out, because it just lands in one spot, then the plants, the grass can't take it up and it just moves down. It's very mobile nitrogen, nitrate in, in mm -hmm. the soil, and it moves down through the soil and into groundwater and then makes its way into our streams, into our aquifers and lakes and rivers and the ocean. Um, and so we pour huge amounts of the stuff on the land and then it, it's, it's just building up and building up in our, in our groundwater and rivers. And then it has these kind of secondary effects. Um, and, and people, I guess, are aware of dead zones off the coast of, of, you know, like off the Mississippi and places like that where you get oxygen depletion happening in the ocean. We, mm -hmm. we have it happening mm -hmm. in our rivers and lakes as well. So you get algal blooms, you know, and you start to get big oxygen fluctuations day and night with the photosynthesizing algae. And so it's kind of mm -hmm. secondary effects of the nitrogen, although it is, it, it is its own toxic issues. And, and then I guess, you know, the other, the other component of that is we've now got the realization that, um, is emerging science all over the world, but but here as well, that quite low levels of nitrogen in drinking water are associated with cancers and some birth defects as well. And so oh, really? we, yeah, and it's 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 only something that's only been just. I mean, the the Danes have done quite a bit of work because they have um, a big database there, so they've they've done the work. The World Health Organization, and it's probably it's the UK limit, and most countries in the world work on this. 11 or around between 10 and 11 milligrams of nitrogen nitrate nitrogen per liter of water how many it is uh, 10 is the limit right and it's called it's it's called it's because of the blue baby syndrome have you heard of this blue What's baby it? syndrome no, before no no it's it's that first few months when a baby's born and it's adapting to its own oxygen rather than its mother's oxygen it's mm -hmm. it's susceptible to to nitrate in water because it will bind instead of hemoglobin, and so the blue baby thing is the blue lips that you get. You know when when somebody's when a human's low on oxygen, their lips turn blue mm -hmm. first, 
is the first sign. So that's where it comes from. But it's 70 year old science. And um, it turns out that this association with cancer is at 10 times less than that. So around one milligram is, is the level in a bunch of studies in the States and Denmark and other parts of Europe um, where you start having an increased risk of colon, colon cancer. Mm-hmm. And, and at similar levels, birth defects, um, premature births and that kind of thing happen at that level of nitrate. So uh, what? how much nitrate is there in water, generally speaking? I mean, do you have data on that for oh, New and, Zealand? And nat- natural. For... Yeah, yeah, naturally in our groundwaters was barely detectable. So, so oh, I'm sure got... naturally because yes, these yes. things oh, do no, tend so to now, work like that. Um, but now... Okay, so, so the big paper that we published just last year... Um, we got hold of all the data, well, um, our student did, um, for 4 million, there's 5 million people in New Zealand, and we got data on the drinking water for 4 million of them. And mm-hmm. of those 4 million, 800,000 receive drinking water that exceeds that one milligram number. So by how much? right up to, you know, or by lots and places, you know, just, it, it's a, you know, it's like a, a, a bell curve with you know a tail of low and then it just gets high there's there's a few that are very very high most people it's not far above that give a number everywhere it's it's increasing so you know there's a lag time from what you do on the land till it ends up in the water Mm -hmm. and so it's been increasing for for 30 years now and it continues to increase and will do even if we stop farming tomorrow we'll still keep oh well we've got some Oh, 60 milligrams, more than 60 16? milligrams in some drinking water. Six, oh, six, zero. Six, zero? And, so, and then the safe yeah, level yeah. is one? Is around one. It's 0.87 was the, was a, gave a 15% increase. No, sorry. 0.87 gave a significant increase in the big, you know, multi-million person study in Denmark. Um, and then when you get to uh, 2.1, you have a 15% increase in the risk of colon cancer. And it just goes up like five mils, uh, 5% uh, risk for every milligram after that. Oh my God. And do you have, mm. do, do you have the data on um, colon cancer in the areas where it is 60 milligrams per yeah. liter? Did yeah, you we, we don't have. We we can, but only very very roughly, and and we have a big research burden to do more studies. But New Zealand has the highest rates of colorectal cancer in the world, and and we can well, we only had the data by by um we have district health boards. So these are you know sort of like regions. There's about ten of them in the country, and we only have the cancer rates for those big areas. And there was definitely yeah. a relationship with intensity of farming and groundwater nitrate and colorectal cancer but you we couldn't you know the the trouble is it's it's like it's like smoking and and lung cancer you know you still can't prove you know somebody smokes all their life and then they get lung cancer you can't prove that it was the cigarettes that do it and in the same way mm-hmm. you sort of have to have these correlative studies and they're so easy for the industry to attack the studies because they say oh well but you know there's all these other factors and you know things that go on but and and undoubtedly there is, and and you can't take a thousand people, you know, and have half of them have nitrate and drinking water and half not and see what happens. Mm. The yeah. lifetime accumulation rates as well. So it's very hard to prove. You can only do these kind of big population studies and just 
hope that people will take a precautionary approach. But but to what, me, it's what it's, is the it's, precaution? It's, it's sorry. Well, to to not use nitrogen fertilizer. I mean, that's what I was coming to. It's right. like. It's like carbon in the atmosphere. We now, we as in humans now produce artificially more nitrogen than all of the natural systems put together. So it was discovered oh. in the 1920s and 30s. It was actually, they were, they were looking at a way of getting nitrogen to make munitions, make bombs, but they, the Harbour-Bosch method, these two German guys found a way to use natural gas to take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and and make it into a reactive nitrogen form and so once we started that we went along that same path as using you know hydrocarbons for energy we used them for making nitrogen fertilizer and it was a big part of the green revolution was this you know artificial synthetic nitrogen and so we've we've grossly altered you know the the amount of nitrogen that's in flux in freshwater systems and so we you know it's it, just just like with with you know carbon dioxide in the atmosphere we something that seemed like a really good idea at the time um suddenly you know later on you realize that there's no free lunch and there's a downside to this and it's mm. and it well what's really interesting for me as an ecologist is how similar the levels that start to call ecosystem problems are to the human health limits so we've mm -hmm. done a bunch of work on on you know the sort of tipping points for ecological freshwater ecological problems and they're very much around that one milligram as well and and maybe it's not coincidental that biological systems flip you know whether it's in inside humans or outside and in, in, in freshwater ecosystems so you know that's and it's interesting for me for for decades fighting to save rivers for it to turn out to be a very similar level that protects human health Mm. And and me thinking, you know, when when we first discovered this, is wow, this this is this will be it, you know. Once you know, people are scared of cancer, and you know, naturally, and this this should change everything. But but there's no sign of that happening. Even even in Denmark, where they've done this really intensive study, the the Danish government won't change their um, drinking water standards. So if they, you know, so it, it's it's just it's another one of these things. It's like the the industries have so much power and trying to shift it and you know people are mm. you know so many people's jobs i guess and and incomes are tied up with being able to use artificial nitrogen that nobody wants to to try you know living without it i mean there's there's studies that show using with our current diets the the estimate is that only three billion people could be fed without the synthetic nitrogen yeah but i think that's it's important to kind of, and, and I'm sure that Jason Bradford talked about this with you as well, that that's because we, because our food system's so stupid at the moment, it, it, you know, we waste half of it and, yeah. and we feed animals and, and, and that we don't need to. And, and I suspect a huge amount of nitrogen fertilizer grow, goes into bio, uh, biofuels as well. Mm. And so, you know, if, if people would only look properly at those biofuel, um, subsidies and realize that they would be better off just taking the gas that they're using to make the fertilizer to grow the crops that they then turn into yeah. biofuels if they just <laughs> just went right back to the start they'd be you know the, the the energy return on investment thing that using fossil fuels to grow crops to replace yeah. fossil fuels is just you know yeah. so, so it's stupid. absolute madness
It's like the mm, hydrogen mm. thing as well. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Make, you know. <laughs> and uh, I did see in the New Zealand Herald recently, actually, that there was one lone journalist who like adequately explained the hydrogen problem and how it's bullshit. And mm. I was very pleased to see that article coming out, even if it's on the other end of the world. But this yeah. all makes me think, I mean, what's amazing about the last, you know, 15 minutes of you speaking is that you have mm -hmm. laid out the step by step of a systemic problem, you know, from um, the kind of the crops that we eat and the food that we eat and how that's affecting, you know, human health and the rivers and how it is all uh, connected. And it, the thing that it makes me think is increasingly and increasingly as I do this podcast is like the climate crisis is very much a political crisis mm. and what do we do how do we communicate all of this information to a public so that they can either i don't know form new political parties or vote in different kinds of people um because and is it too much information to to feed the public as well in a sense like how do we construct mm. a, a narrative or construct um a, a truth that portrays the extent of the climate crisis and the political crisis and what's not being done that isn't, say, overwhelming or doesn't get mired down in the details that tend to mire academics down into these little atomized silos, as you were speaking of at the beginning. Mm. Yeah, oh, I think that part of the problem, too, is not just, it's that, that, that siloing of, you know, like we have a climate commission and we have you know, we have, we silo climate and, and it's so frustrating that climate is just a symptom as, as we both know yeah. of, a, of a whole lot of crises that are happening, but it, it's sort of the one that gets the most and, and what gets lost in there, you know, in the, the, the nitrogen intensive farming story in New Zealand is a really, really good example of it where there are multiple impacts of intensive farming. So greenhouse gas emissions, half of New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions are, come from biogenic methane and so mm. you know all those cows are actually you know a big problem for our greenhouse gas emissions as well and and what the government does is you know the climate commission says we need to do something let's come up with some um they want to come up with a technical fix for the methane emissions and so they want they've got ideas around gene editing and um, oh, things that can on. be put and no, you seriously. So that, but the thing is that they want to fix the methane issue, right? And yet, if if we say cut the number of cows, we fix a whole bunch of issues. And that's the thing that, you know, the same with the climate is there's so many things that you know go together that if if we just pick them off, this my feeling is if we just talk about climate and we try to find a fix for climate and we do you know, work in that area, we forget, or we don't think about the multiple gains. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you mm -hmm. just pick on one thing at a time, it seems impossible. But if you talk about all of the gains, human health and, you know, social well-being and all of these other things that are all interconnected and, and how much our lives could be better. I guess it, it's an advantage too, um, in, in a way for me seeing this a, as an old man, because I know that um, in my lifetime, per capita energy use has doubled. And so if somebody says to a young person, well, you have to halve your energy use, well, then it seems like the end of the world. But I only have to go back to my youth to know what the world was like when we had half the per capita energy use that we do at the moment. And I know you tend to romantic, you know, we tend to romanticize the past, but 
Yeah. Uh, I've talked to lots of friends who were around at the same time as me and, and life wasn't so bad with a half the energy use. You know, I can't see, mm. there's nothing in my modern life that um, I see as a great advantage over, you know, having all of this technology and, and energy consumptive things around me that we have now make my life any better. Um, in fact, the opposite, I think. And so, you know, it's that that kind of trying to to envisage a future um, that's different when, than when it's all you know. Actually, I want to try this little analogy on you, this, uh, this idea that I, I read about um, in a different topic, but made me think. Apparently, I, don't, I haven't done a lot of research in, into it, but apparently in Egypt, the, the three big pyramids were built. I, it took about three or four generations to build those pyramids. And, and I imagine myself as, or, or anyone alive today, imagine being around in the generation around the time that they decided not to build any more pyramids. Because apparently the whole <laughs> economy was, was building pyramids. You know, everyone you knew, um, you know, made ropes or made rollers or were involved in some way in building pyramids. And, and all your parents ever knew and all your grandparents ever knew was building pyramids, mm. right? And you get to the end, and I don't know what it was that made them decide they had enough pyramids and they weren't going to build anymore. But but I can picture, you know, being at that time and it's like, but how can you have life without pyramids, you know, without pyramid building? Because we don't know any other way of living without <laughs> having pyramids being built. And yeah. I can see all around me, you know, sky towers and skyscrapers that are our versions of pyramids. And we only ever know a life of building these things. And so we have to... I think it, it kind of makes it easier for me to think about it in that way that there's all through human history, there has been times when things came to an end and you can't imagine a future that's different from what you know, or it's very difficult to, um, but, but, but that's how we have to see the changes that we need to make, I think. Do we know what happened to the Egyptian economy? Off the top of your head, what did um, they transition no, I to? Should, I should look into that. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine that. Um, I mean, it, it must have been, it's, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because you, because of all of the effort that went into that, and then somebody must have looked back and gone, well, why are we doing this? You know, what are these, like I do now, I'm, I've got to that point yeah. where it's like, why do we do this? What, you know, I just, you, you just work so hard to, all your life to pay off something, you know, or, you know, people get trapped in the wealthy world that we live in, you know, they get locked yeah. into these systems and, and we can't see um, a way out of it because it's all we've ever known. Yeah. And maybe I, I wonder too, if it's because, and, and I kind of try to figure out how come people don't have a problem with it. And, and I think about a time for me when I was a young researcher, I spent time actually a summer in the subantarctic islands we new zealand has a couple of um islands this this was campbell island halfway to antarctica and um i lived on an island reset with a couple of other researchers and we had no nothing there was no power no no running water just nothing 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 no planes fly over no radio no t you know no communications no oh, i had a um i had a cd player I had three <laughs> CDs with music on them that I took down with me that kept going for most of the time that I was there because I had enough batteries. But, you know, this I think that experience that maybe changes 
and you know, I've got this, I've, you've seen a picture of this old 90 year old sailboat that I've got as well. So, you know, <laughs> I go to, to a really simple life f for holidays and things. And, and actually most people I know, that's their idea of, of a holiday is to get away from technology and lie on a beach or go, you know, in the forest and go walking. And so somehow, you know, where we need to be, there's much more simple, low tech, low energy lives that seem to scare so many people, the thought of it. Um, yet bizarrely, that's what they want to do when they have a chance to go on holiday and that kind of thing. Not everyone I know, well, you know, some people want to go <laughs> shopping. <laughs> I think, I think it's honestly, I think it's like we're, we're veering into dangerous rhetoric here because there is mm, much mm. about tech that is really, really important. Like whenever I start to get yeah. a little bit anti-tech in my head, um, mm. I think of the medical industry. You know, there is mm, so mm. much th that we need to invest in. There is so much technology that is saving lives. You know, we are an inherently sort of symbiotic species with our technology. And we mm. have been for millennia. And there's a lot of tech that should be celebrated. And personally, I'm very happy to live in a world where I have access to an entire encyclopedia of information mm. on the internet. But, but isn't, isn't that causing lots people. of problems as well, though, that, that the internet knowledge you know, trying to sort out the real from the fake. And the other thing I wanted to say sure, about the but... medical stuff is how much of, you know, like the colon cancer, for example, you know, how much of it's created through this technology that we have as well. So we, we need the technology to have the medical systems and that, but, you know, huge increases in the problems that are caused by the technology that, you know, it's, it's like chasing your tail kind of thing. But it's but it's not caused by the technology. It's caused by the the people that uh, choose mm -hmm. to disseminate sure. false information or hide research or refuse to mm. change certain mm. standards and practices despite the information that we have and despite the fact that there's probably new technology that could do better because they're trying to protect their bottom mm -hmm. line. Like I really yes, still yes, see it as a problem of economy, even mm. with, you know, yes, the internet is causing like a lot of mental health problems and Facebook and all this kind of stuff. It's because they're deliberately designing algorithms to addict mm. people, not because the True. the internet is in itself an inherently bad thing. Like the, the reason that I really like to split hairs on this topic is because it's kind of easy to be scared of tech as somebody that used to be. Um, when it's like, no, 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 let's keep focus on it's the people in power. <laughs> it's the, mm, mm. It's, oh, it's yeah. the inequality of power and capital yes. that is the problem. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no, that's true. I have to admit that's true. <laughs> I mean, I do absolutely agree with you that like a lower energy life um, could be hugely beneficial. And even if I, we, I had um, Richard Heinberg on discussing energy rationing. Mm. And I was like, oh, that is interesting. Imagine, you know, afterwards for a few weeks, I was thinking about it. What would life look like if I had to ration my energy? Like, what would I use my rations on? Well, I would definitely use them on work for sure. And then what would happen if mm. I ran out at the end of the day? Well, I'd probably read a book. Mm. I'd probably speak to yeah, my community. Exactly. I'd probably, yeah. you know, these yeah. kinds of yeah. things that I do still do, but not as much because mm. there is a world of laziness available to me in a sense, Yes, yes um, which I think yes. is exacerbated by a hyper-capitalist world where we're all sort of working ourselves to the bone endlessly, mm. um, which mm -hmm. is also in turn fueled by unlimited quote-unquote energy. Um, mm. So I think it's very interesting and it's, you know, a less tech world could be great, but only if it comes hand in hand with, you know, 
correcting the the imbalances of of power and capital that have made it thus. Mm. Well, I mean, that's that's an interesting kind of conclusion that I came and shocked myself with. I don't know a year or two ago when I started, I questioned, you know, because of all these sort of um, alternative energy sources that we could have, and I kind of came to this amazing conclusion myself that, you know, say we came up with some, you know, carbon-free, endless energy source, um, would we be better off? And when right. I asked myself, then I, I, I just said, no, we wouldn't be because what's allowing us to do all of the harm to the planet and destroy our futures is unlimited energy. And actually mm. the only thing that will probably save us is running out of energy, you know, or at least really cheap, free, well, it's almost free fossil fuel energy that we have at the moment that's driven so much. And it, I could never have imagined myself thinking that, you know, because I was always, you know, like so many people who think about all we have to do is just stop using fossil fuels and replace it all with renewable and everything will be great. You know, and we, we know how how difficult or impossible that would be at anywhere near the lifestyles that we have at the moment. But but that actually that might be the thing that saves us. Except that mm. the what the worry is that we will that we won't accept that reality and we will destroy everything we have trying to replace fossil fuels. And and that's the that's like an even worse outcome in a way. It's hard to Absolutely. imagine. Because yeah, because I think you touched on it with that laziness. I think I, I know myself, we're, we're, I'm inherently lazy. If there's an easy way of doing something, if there's a shortcut, if there's a, a powered version of something that I'm doing, well, I'll always, it, it, it's kind of natural to us that we'll take that way, won't we? And I, I used to, I remember cracking up my, my office at the previous university was looked out on the gym car park, you know, the gymnasium. And I mm -hmm. used to watch it in, in the evening, the, the fights and things that would happen over people f trying to get the car park nearest to the gym door, you know, so they didn't have to walk <laughs> so far to go to the yeah. gym. And it kind of sums yeah. up human nature, doesn't it? That we will, you know, <laughs> if there's an easy way out. Even even though they were going to the gym to do exercise, they still didn't want to walk across the car park. And so uh, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're our own worst enemies, I'm sure. I think the the other possible option that is really scary is that if we do get to a stage where um, the world powers finally understand that energy is limited, they will start to limit it for us and limit what energy mm. can be invested in. Because if you and I, for mm. me, I always look at right where is financial capital going. Because that is where energy mm -hmm. would go. And I think of like the, the United yes. Kingdom, which is like at cutting, you know, education, cutting the health service, cutting arts. Mm. I mean, local arts <clears throat> funding has just been on a massive decline for, for decades. Um, in great comparison to France, they like funnel money into their arts. Mm. Um, and to me, what's frightening is, you know, when I think of some of the great benefits of a fossil fuel economy, you know, one of the things I think about is the press, the printing press and books mm. and yeah. how, you know, we managed to create musical instruments with ease and artwork and all this kind of stuff and distribute mm. words and imagination. And that's all fantastic. And you can guarantee that would be the first thing to go because everybody knows the arts mm. don't make money. Um, yeah. And that's where I get frightened of if we do not fix the political structures that are at play here. Um, I think it's less likely that the world is going to go up in flames, 
but rather um, every single option which we perceive as a luxury today, even though it's couched in complete misery and precarity, is going to be taken away from us. And it's going to be a very mm. small group of people that make decisions on who we are, what we consume, what we have access to. Um, and essentially, you know, <sighs> deliver us all into like climate serfdom. Um, and mm. that's going to be harder to get out of than a Mad Max anarchy thing. And I think far more likely. Yes, yes. Did you, have you read um, any of Charles Hall's um, stuff on energy return on investment? And oh, I, I mean, it was, it, it's really interesting because to me, because he started off doing his PhD and the same as me working on, on freshwater fish and their migration. Mm -hmm. And he was the guy that first termed energy return on investment, as far okay. as I know, um, be, because he was looking at these migrating fish and going, well, why are they migrating? What's the point? You know, and he did an energy mm. study and found that there was a EROI of 14, you know, so for every unit of energy they spent migrating into the ocean biome, they, they gained 14 units. And, and that's exactly where I was working in, in my PhD initially as well. And then he talks about um, as energy return on investment starts to decline and more and more energy has to go into getting the energy, then what that happens in an economy is that the discretionary chunk of the economy starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller as the energy return on investment declines. He's got these lovely graphics and um, so, uh, the, the, the discretionary. Can you define discretionary? Oh, so how much money's left over for fun things like the arts? And so um, they, they, he wrote a, a really cool paper with one of his students and they, they looked at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, mm. and sort of looked at what went first. And he, he found that what the, the indicator of uh, a society that had plenty of discretionary energy well, energy return on investment was um orchestras so the you know like the if a country if, if a you know i don't know how many orchestras that, that scotland has but or the, <laughs> the you know the, that's the indicator of of how much sort of spare discretionary money there is and and as the how squeeze comes on as the energy return on investment starts to decline um, there's an amazing book, um, Energy and the Wealth of Nations, that that he that he wrote. Uh, it's one of those Springer books that's worth a fortune. Um, well, no, sorry, that mm -hmm. costs a fortune, but it's but um, as as academics, we can get access to them for for next to nothing. But yeah, I mean that he he just and so they could see that it was that that was the first sign of the decline, and it was exactly what you were hinting at. It's the good things that get taken away the things that we that makes us you know happy i guess is the thing is and, and you gradually lose that um those things and then it was um education i think after that you can kind of work your way down that that this kind of hierarchy and they're the things that start to disappear and and you know there's examples like um you know, with the Arab Spring and that kind of thing as well, as countries start to, you know, not have that discretionary money because the energy return on investment declines, that's, you can see it happening. What are we going to accept to go? Mm. I mean, is it going to be that, you know, we accept that they cut our arts funding. We accept that they cut mm. our 
um, health budgets. We accept that they cut our education. What are we going to accept is what is going to get to that first level, food and shelter. Mm. And that's when we're like, yeah. oh, no, no, that's enough, actually. And it's it's utterly madness. And to me, even like Maslow's uh, triangle of hierarchy of needs is kind of misleading as well, because what is a world without art? What is a human society mm. without literature? Yes, you know, yeah, we need I these agree, things. Yeah. These are these mm. are these incredible things that like essentially it's the individuation of subjective experience that speaks to a collective understanding. Mm -hmm. That's magic. Yes. You know, yeah. what what else is there? Because yeah. right now we have a world that atomizes people into individuals to fulfill a collective action and alienate them from one another. And art, literature, these music, these are the things that manage to mm -hmm express the, the very essence of what it is to experience being alive and speak to one another. These are the things that we need to be protecting. Yes. Um, and I think the more that we let and we allow for this modern world to destabilize, denigrate and disavow our need for music, art, literature, connection, um, then the closer we are, the closer we're going to come to falling into that kind of dystopia, which will essentially just be a um i don't know jacked up version of what already exists <laughs> yeah yeah oh no I, I agree and it's those those things that makes us human that um are yeah. so important to us yeah yeah for sure i mean i i kind of i was thinking about another experience that i had um worked in um had it in, in romania for a while and the people that i was working with um teaching and and researching um, Angela, uh, her mum lived in the mountains in Romania and we went to visit her and she was in her, yeah, she was late sixties at that age. She had never been to hospital in her life, never been to the dentist in her life. She had a bit of a mm. stoop, you know, like she was, yeah. but she'd lived <laughs> on that same piece of land for that whole length of time. And they had amazing kind of, you know, social structure with that village that she lived in they shared a, a tractor between uh, heaps of them and it's just a, a kind of a lesson in what's really important in life and how we kind of can't imagine in our in our world of everything um how we can't imagine a life without it and and the and we forget i guess um lose touch we lo certainly lose touch with with nature and where our food comes from and all that kind of thing which is really, really crucial to to life, I think, and become yeah, sort of disconnected, and um, and then a whole lot of other problems that flow from that. So um, yeah, it's it's not like there isn't um, examples of of how we could and should live out there, but somehow you know, like you say, the 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 governments that get taken over by big business and corporations and that kind of crazy drive for maximizing growth that, that mm. lead us into this trap that we're in now. And it's very hard to see a way out of it. I think also in order to envision a way out of it, we need to mm. be able to present people with like um, a, a scalable option. Because right now, you know, I spoke to Walter Jean about regenerative agriculture. I spoke with Jason Bradford. Mm. And they are doing incredible things to educate people on um, how soils work, uh, how you can feed yeah. yourself in your community, for example. But, um, and this is something that I've said, and I've had a couple of uh, listeners like pull me up on it, <laughs> uh, but I stand by it. I don't want to be a farmer. Mm -hmm. I don't. I yeah. do not. That is yeah. not how I envision my life. I would like to be a part of a community where I could fulfill 
a, a function where I could help perhaps, but I do not want to be manning a farm um, for the rest of my life. I would like a scalable option of regenerative agriculture that shows me how we can make this work for a town, for example. Like what are the other economic and energy systems that we need to put in place to support a re regenerative agriculture project so that it can feed, you know, 10, 20,000 people rather than 100, 200. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think Jason, you know, Jason Bradford talked about this, about that, that switch in those primary um, jobs, the jobs that were, mm. you know, how it's yes. completely <laughs> reversed now. And, and so everyone's a, a barista or a car salesman or something now, and there's very, very few people producing the food. But, but I, I, I fear though, um, Rachel, that that's the reality of if you take fossil fuels out of agriculture then mm. and food production, then you need to have a lot more people working in there to replace it. Um, I, you mm. know, because I think we, we kind of vainly convinced ourselves as humans that this green revolution was all about how clever we are when actually mm. it was just about the energy that went into it and none of those so-called technologies or would, would exist without fossil fuels. Um, you know, so, I mean, we, we've learned a lot about, but we've forgotten a lot about how to, how to, to be at one with nature and to produce food and all that kind of thing. But I think, you know, I, I can't remember his figures, but there was a few percent that, um, were involved in tertiary jobs and, you know, in, in previous pre, pre-industrialization. So you could be mm. one of the few percent who didn't have to work on the land. <laughs> I, I understand. I mean, I, I, I really enjoy, you know, I mean, I don't know, obviously I've had it, I've never had to have backbreaking work out on the land, but, um, you know, there is, there is so much to be said. I, I was a dairy farmer here for a year and mm. it was pretty low, low tech, low input, and it was pretty neat kind of lifestyle to be to be kind of closer to the land and yeah you know, i mean and people like jason um you know and and the the sort of connections and and how he sees how much other people enjoy it too but i know it's mm. not for everyone but um well i think i think what's important is that part of that vision needs to be that scalability in terms of mm. it's not going to be groups of 100 each living in very very tight small yes. fearful communities that have the burden mm. Of looking after one another intimately like if we mm -hmm. can scale mm -hmm. that so that it is a small town that is working collectively to look after one another and then that burden of responsibility is shared as well and then it would allow for yeah. more people to have more time to do different kinds of things and co-create a community that isn't just based on food production because the thing is that's mm -hmm. not a vision that you can sell unless it's to people that are like <laughs> yeah, no i right. no, i really like to do this already yes you yes know? I, I get what you're saying yeah 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 for sure something to mull over if anybody can think of it yeah let us know <laughs> yeah i i can't i think about this um this this book um it's called an island to oneself and it's about a kiwi guy who in the 50s um had this dream of living on an island and he by himself and he and he actually found one that belongs to it's called sawaro and it, it's an island that belongs to rarotonga and he managed to get a, a, a trading ship to drop him off there with a few supplies. And there was an old World War II, um, you know, hut that was on this island. And he, he, he wrote this book about his experience there and, and it was amazing. And what amazed me was that 
so he's living by himself. He's in one of the most productive parts of the world. Um, you know, the the reefs just and right outside his door is full of fish. There's seabirds. There's all manner of life to to feed himself with. He bought seeds and things with him, and he created a garden. But the reality was that after a couple of years, he spent virtually all his days building, making gardens, you know, shoring up his 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 house that he lived in. It was actually a full-time job for an individual. You know, sort of people think about this, you know, a desert island thing where you lie around reading books and stuff. It was actually a full-time job and some real amazing mm. lessons. He took tomato plants with him and he planted them in his garden that took him ages to build because he had to cart soil from somewhere else. And it, and this tomato, these tomato plants grew amazingly, but but there was no fruit because there were no pollinators there. And so his first oh, year's crop cool. of tomatoes, there wasn't a single fruit set on it. And you know these kind of lessons. But I mean, I guess that's the that's the opposite of community. In that, if you're trying mm. to do it by yourself, it's a it's a well, you know. I mean, if 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 he struggled to do it in the most productive kind of biome in the world then in in somewhere like you know um like scotland if you were trying to do it by yourself i can't imagine you would live for very long at all so you need that community and it's just the yeah. it's just the size of the community that is what is different i guess and and how pe different people envisage it and there's i i've got a feeling that around 100 was kind of an ideal size um i'm, I'm not mm. talking about you know, warring and fighting and all that kind of thing. But maybe at, at that kind of number, you can all be connected and know each other and, you know, know where you, what your different roles are and things. And, and maybe think, if it gets too it, much bigger than that, you lose that. I think I've read that um, we can have 200 uh close connections. Like our brain is built mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. recognize and to have relationships with maximum 200 people. And that's yep. from, you know, the bygone tribal era. I believe Yeah, there certainly uh, seems to be my limit. <laughs> 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 I, can't, so I just can't remember people's names and things after that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but still, I think, and, and maybe this is a, a hangover from having existed only in a modern world. Although, do you know what? No, I'm going to come out with it. I've lived in I've lived in a teeny, teeny, tiny village that had, you know, 200 French people in it. I've lived in the biggest mm -hmm. capital in Europe. Um, I've, mm -hmm. you know, tried to find different ways and explore different ways of living. And I agree that finding a community is is so key. And um, even doing it in a, a big space, in a great big capital, carving out the people that you know is, is crucial and helping mm. one another. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, to me, part of the joy of existing is happenstance, you know, seeing something surprising, uh, coming across somebody new, having a conversation, even just for five minutes and then parting ways, which is something that can only happen once you get up to these these bigger numbers, you know, walking yeah. down the street and seeing a piece of art, you know, scrawled on a wall um, and not knowing where it comes from, but having it speak to you like I... I just think that there is a lot still about this modern world that ought to be celebrated. And if we don't start to celebrate the correct things, then they will be the first to be lost because they are not celebrated by those uh, who currently make the rules. Um, mm. I think, yeah, you know, we really have to be Yeah, that's a really good point. So... I haven't thought about it. 
<laughs> I just think we have to be so clear with our targets. Mm, that's true. Nice note to end on. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of gone <laughs> everywhere, hasn't it? But um, yeah, yeah it, it's kind of, I mean, I think you're going to reach this point where you've kind of, you've you've had all of these experts from around the world on and covered everything that you can possibly cover maybe and and then um then and then i guess it's trying to figure out how how are we going to make this change how how is it going to come about it just seems like we 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 talk about it and we know about it but it seems even more even less likely that we're going to make the right decisions or that governments are you know that that um this this sort of three options that i see for the future and there's business as usual and we just we just kill ourselves you know trying to maintain this growth until we until we've destroyed everything there's um there's a kind of um the green growth model which seems to be what a lot of people kind of imagine that we will just seamlessly transition into this renewable world and because they they see all the hype the you know the stories online about hydrogen and and hydrogen mm. planes and battery this and you know the, the the whole world will just just carry on as it is and we'll just switch to renewables and and then there's the and and to me that is that's a nightmare outcome as well because we'll just destroy everything we have trying to trying to maintain what we have you know, by yeah. switching to renewables, so I'm going with this incredibly energy dense, you know, one off sort of legacy that we that we got from from the past, and then and if we try to maintain our current lifestyles in the wealthy West, then we will end up uh, destroying everything, and it'll be just as nightmarish as business as usual. So the the third option is the only viable one, and that is. Uh, ecologically sustainable you know start you know i was just thinking because here in new zealand i don't know where where it is in the uk but our earth overshoot day was three mm. last month it was the 19th of april and the 19th of on the 19th yeah. of april in new zealand we we went into overshoot and went so we yeah. we every day now we're in e ecological debt and so you know we've got to come back a long long way to get that balance and that's the only option for us is this you know um living within um you know this this these boundaries of of one planet and the only way that's going to happen is is through degrowth degrowth and a, and whatever kind of word you want to put on it but we have to stop growing and we have to decrease massively decrease what we consume and what we do and so there's there's this i just see that if you cut it down there's just three possibilities here um and it's hard it just doesn't seem to be any sign of of the the business as usual and maybe a combination of business as usual which is just green business as usual you know dressed up as green it's not actually green it's it's just this imaginary green because um it's just as destructive and it involves so just isn't well it involves more fossil fuels to create the kind of infrastructure that people imagine that we're going to have so which really leaves just one and and that is you know that that kind of living within the boundaries and, and massively decreasing and it's it's really hard to imagine how that's going to come about because 
any government that talked about it would be gone. You know, they're not going to get the votes. It's, it's a popularity contest. And so, I don't know, do, do you see a way that that would actually happen? <laughs> um, I, yes, actually, yes. I, I think, <laughs> I think you have to zoom out a little bit and ask, like, start asking different questions because how, how do we make that impossible thing happen? Um, well, it's an impossible thing, right? So what other questions can we ask to that space to promote different, uh, answers? And one of the things that I started asking myself, um, a few months ago was how do we get people excited about politics again? How do we change the paradigm of what a, a politi what politics is or what politicians do or what they're capable of? Um, because if you get people excited about politics again, if you galvanize a new movement and you present an entirely new option that people can thus have hope in. It's like um, I had a literary agent say to me a few months ago, the first book is always the most important, the debut, because nobody mm. has anything bad to say. It's pure hope. So it's like, <laughs> in order to create pure hope, you need to present something entirely new. So what I think needs to happen is a, if looking at this part of the world, a pan-European Green Party. Now there are structures that are already in place, like Democracy in Europe 25 or Party of the European Left. I think what needs to happen is Spain, France, Italy, Denmark, Finland, the UK, you know, everywhere there needs to be a party that comes forward and say, we are a European party. We have national chapters. We have policies that are particular to our national needs on certain things, but we have one climate manifesto mm -hmm. and we have one energy manifesto and we have one X manifesto. And that is going to grease the wheels in the European parliament. Mm. Here is what we could achieve in like one year if we were all voted in. So that to me is a question with a, a response. Yeah. Um, how do you get people excited? And thus, how would that then enable political action? So I think it yeah. needs to be, in terms of envisioning a new future, it's like we need to be asking certain questions about that reveal an, uh, the possibilities of new futures. Um, and we need to get people excited and we need to address those in the middle, really. Ugh, I don't know. I'm, mm. Now my train of thought's going away. Um, yeah, you know, but I, but I think that's, um, I, I can imagine that it's like the world's waiting for somebody to lead the way. And I think if Europe did it, it, it you know, once there was a kind of a, a leader for the rest of the world to follow, I think it would happen. You know, it would, it would, people are kind of, I get the feeling that people know that we're in deep, deep trouble and they're looking yeah. for somebody to, to show, yeah. you know, and then once it started, it would be a roller coaster and everybody would, you know, there would be quickly um be movement in that direction it's just it's, yeah. it's that 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 getting it getting it someone to fire it off in the first place someone to be brave um yeah you know because because the only one that seems to get held up as is a as a model is cuba and and that was because it kind of was forced on them and, and it'd be much better mm. to have one that was led rather than forced and and that people could then get excited about and follow yeah 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 and I think we I need to start taking civilian action as well. Um, one of the mm. things that I've been thinking about, I don't know if I should say this on the pod. Maybe, um, yeah, I'm going to. Um, I want to put on the real COP. On the anniversary right. this year ah, of yeah. COP26, I want to put on the real yes. COP. 
with like leftist mm, politicians, mm. world experts, activists, mm. civilians, yes. business leaders yes. who are aware of the problem and actually talk solutions, mm. real solutions, gritty solutions, mm. troubleshoot each other, create uh, networks, create relationships, envision a new future together, co-create it, publicize the hell out of it. Um, and show yeah. public the public around the world people are doing something there is it, it's not a lost cause um that's yeah. that's that's my big goal for 2022 so if anybody has yeah, money no, sound... <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the idea of it because um i don't want to have to glue myself to door handles which is um mm. uh, because of that scientist process pro um protest um I've had people approach me saying, you know, are you going to do that here in New Zealand? And I'm not that brave to kind of do, I'm not the sort of person <laughs> that does that kind of thing. So I want your, your, I want your, your real cop to happen and, and, and for scientists to be involved in that rather than having to glue yeah. themselves or, you know, chain themselves to railroad tracks or anything like that. So yeah. I'm too chicken yeah. for that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's 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 the big goal, frankly, for for the end of this year. I think yeah. um, I think everybody is waiting for the trigger to be pulled somewhere. And um, mm. recently, I've just I'm I'm kind of overweighting. Um, yes. I'm gonna pull as many as I can, and I think I'm in a really fortunate position where it has nothing to do with me. I'm not an expert on anything. Um, uh, but one yeah, thing I can do is get people Yeah, but that's a great place to be, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because there's too, yeah, like, I mean, you you know this, that the people, it's too reductionist, the system is set up, that nobody's kind right. of having that overview. And I guess that's the kind of people that you've had um, on your podcast have been the, the, the people who can see the bigger picture. And, and then yeah. it's, um, yeah, it's, that's the secret to, um, to, to understanding our, our predicament and to be able to, to, to change it as, as being able to bring it all together. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. We can make it happen. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. listen. I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. My final question, as always, is who would you like to platform? Um, I don't know. It's hard, isn't it? Because you, you kind of end up, I don't want to suggest somebody who's already doing or in my world, but you know, talking to the same place, but, but, well, but Jack honest, Santa Barbara. Jack Santa Barbara. Because I don't have yeah. a lot of water talk on this podcast and I think it, oh, it's actually okay. a no, component this, that's this missing. Yeah. No, I don't know any, any watery people, but, but Jack's kind of <laughs> across this, um, and trying to get degrowth to happen here. And, um, okay. he has amazing connections all around the world and, and, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I just worry that it's kind of more of the same. And um, we have some amazing indigenous leaders here that could be really interesting to to to, to yeah, have a definitely. different view, kind of. So, so can I throw in one more? And um, please, as, as a, a, an indigenous woman here, who's who's really powerful and making a difference in her community and on the on the world stage, and that's um, is Tina Nata. And and I can give you contact details for her. But, Fantastic. Um, yeah, she's an inspirational um, Maori woman who's who's taken on uh, the government here, and 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 with 
without being you know associating with any political party but really trying to 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 make a difference awesome i would love an introduction to her thank you so much mm. thank you for your yeah. time it was cool. great speaking with you uh, thanks rachel it was fun see ya if you want to learn more about Mike's work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked the episode, leave a review and share it. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. Supporting the podcast also directly supports my climate corruption investigations. So a huge thank you to the community who make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.